Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Takeover. I'm Vlad and today my guest is Anthony Lusardi, who is best known for his work at the ETC Cooperative, but at the same time he's also one very ardent proponent of Bitcoin and somebody who really, really believes in immutability and the technology behind sound money. So hello, Anthony. Hey, Vlad. Thanks for having me. It's great it's good to have you. And I'm happy that I get to, uh, you, you're not aware of it, but I'm happy that I get to have guests from all the corners of the world and I get to ask them about the state of Bitcoin as a mean of exchange all throughout mm -hmm. the planet. I, I've had a guest from Portugal. I've had another one from the United Kingdom. And you're on the East Coast of the United States of America? Yep, in New York. Okay, so I guess the situation of Bitcoin as a currency is a lot better in New York, and you actually have places to pay with it. You have restaurants to pay bills and maybe hotels which accept Bitcoin. What's the situation like? Uh, yeah, I've never actually transacted with Bitcoin or any cryptocurrency in person. I mean, I have used them when doing either, uh, what would it be like, uh, a transaction between two people, like if I have a friend or something, we might trade in Bitcoin. Uh, I bought an umbrella with Dogecoin not long ago. Um, and yeah, but as far as actually spending it, I have seen a couple of places like bars and restaurants that accept Bitcoin. I have personally uh, used one of those types of credit cards where you pay with Bitcoin and it automatically converts it to cash. So you can buy pretty much anything you want with Bitcoin, which I think is really cool. Um, but yeah, I think still adoption isn't really quite there as far as being able to transact in person. I think that's going to improve over the next year or two with uh, Lightning Network once it really, you know, gets some more usage. It can actually do larger, larger channels because right now I think it's limited to about $160 or so per channel uh, at the max reliably. But yeah, it, it's definitely growing. Um, just nowhere near the point where I think I could actually use Bitcoin day to day yet, at least for what I use it for. So when was the first time you heard about Bitcoin and what was the main point that drew you into it? What made you say, this is what I, what I like to work for, this is the future of money, and this is something which I like at least ideologically or practically? But I didn't say any of that about Bitcoin the first time I heard about it. The first time I heard about Bitcoin was like 2013 and I heard about the market crash and I read a little bit about it. I was like, oh, wow, that seems like a great idea. It's too bad it's dead now. Uh, that was my first exposure to Bitcoin. And then I didn't look at it on, or anything really until 2014 when I realized that Bitcoin and these other cryptocurrencies were still around. Um, and that's kind of when I got into understanding uh, Bitcoin and what it gives you and the importance of it beyond just the ability to, you know, go and make a quick buck, which at first, when I first started in 2014, all I thought to myself was, well, this stuff is still here, so maybe it'll take off again uh, like it did. 
and I went and bought a bunch of Dogecoin instead, I think. And uh, yeah, I kind of learned. I learned a lot there. I, you know, learned that I was just trading with stuff that I didn't understand. I was getting involved with uh, buying these cryptocurrencies for just the wrong reasons. And I don't think I actually learned the importance of Bitcoin or that any of this really dawned on me until 2015. I think is when I first really started to take this stuff more seriously. And even then I was still more uh, Ethereum because they were doing new interesting things. It wasn't until 2016 or so that I really started to truly appreciate the tech and the approach and ideology that uh, the Bitcoin community and the Bitcoin network sort of has intrinsically to itself. Was there any point when you automatically associated Bitcoin with the Silk Road and you thought it's just money for people who want to buy drugs? No, I never really thought that. I did. Um, it was the Silk Road was one of Bitcoin's earliest and largest use cases. That's not the case anymore, but definitely many, many years ago, uh, you know, 2013, 2014, it was definitely where the majority of economic activity around Bitcoin seemed to be happening. Okay. I was about to ask you about BitLicense and the fact that in the state of New York, you actually have fewer use cases and it's actually much more difficult to use Bitcoin in business than in every other state around the U.S., and I guess here in Europe, it's much different since the adoption level is much lower and the authorities don't really care about regulating Bitcoin or creating a legislative framework for transactions. So how, I guess you've traveled around the United States and you've seen different approaches to how Bitcoin is used. And do you think it's stricter in the New York area? I. Uh... It is for New York residents. It's definitely harder to get on exchanges. You can only use certain ones. And um, you don't get access to a lot of other financial products that come along with that because in New York, any licensed exchange is pretty much uh, just an order book with buys and sells. Um, in general, though, yeah, I don't, I don't like good license. I think it really restricts... Uh, the cryptocurrency market in general, it restricts people from, you know, kind of being able to invest in and use things that uh, they should have access to, you know, everybody should be able to do so. I think one of the reasons why we see uh, Bitcoin in general become so popular amongst a lot of people in terms of buying and selling isn't so much the tech, it's the fact that if you want access to any sort of good investment with a high rate of return, uh, and of course high risk too, you need to be an accredited investor. And so you don't get access to things where you can actually put in a dollar and make a hundred dollars uh, very, very often. Um, I think a lot of people first, when coming to Bitcoin, they kind of look at it like that, where here's finally this thing where I can invest like the big boys do. Uh, but yeah, it's really, 
I don't I don't like bid license, and it sucks that it's now being exported to other states too in the U.S. I remember I spoke to Alex Mashinsky, who is one of the VOIP innovators, and he also has this venture which is called Celsius Network, which is mm -hmm. some, somewhat of a bank in the crypto sphere. And he said during a conference that for the first time in history, Bitcoin has given regular people the opportunity to invest and make money before the one percenters did. So in this sense, it was something which came from below, from maybe computer scientists and libertarians who are interested in this idea of digital sound money. And it was much later when the bankers realized just what potential this has. And I guess even right now when we speak, there's a very limited amount of institutional money which is going to get poured in, at least in 2019. Maybe it will get better in time. Uh, yeah, I don't know the numbers exactly, but I've definitely seen uh, numbers where it seems like institutional investment trends up every year. But yeah, it's just a way to get access to an investment, uh, I guess they would call it a vehicle, that normally regular people wouldn't have access to. I think you actually, you see that now too, where like, uh, what's that exchange? Gemini is now advertising that crypto needs rules and this type of thing and needs the right regulatory framework. And I agree regulations are good in some ways because they can protect people. Like it would be great if uh, every exchange could be completely 100% insured and regulated to make sure that they're not doing fishy things like wash trading. But on the other end, um, the other thing that comes with regulations is the fact that any regular person tends to get pushed out in time. So we'll have this glorious period where everybody's free to do what they want with their money and accept their own responsibility and take their own risks for their own rewards. And uh, yeah, I think regulation eventually is going to sort of crush that. But at the end of it, we'll still have a decentralized, highly distributed, uh, permissionless money that anybody could use anywhere across the world without fear of censorship or it being taken away from you or, you know, state senior age be printing more money to finance wars. Uh, so Bitcoin still gives us a lot, even if we end up with those crap regulations eventually. Another event or treaty which I associate with the New York is the New York Agreement, which took place in 2017. And I think ultimately it was a big compromise between the different scaling ideas that people had at the time. Okay. And it was mainly pragmatic people who didn't care much about, I mean, they found the middle ground between technology and scalability, and they had this view which was in the middle between miners and regular users and developers. Mm -hmm. And even though it wasn't as bad as Bitcoin Cash is right now, I guess it still had its community. So what is your view regarding to the New York agreement? And is there anything that you found out just by being there? Was there talk on the streets about it? 
no, they only talk on Twitter. Um, so the New York agreement, at first, uh, back in like 2016, even, or when was it? It was, New York agreement was 2017. So yeah, when I first saw it, I thought uh, that it was generally a good idea. I've obviously since then rethought my position quite a lot, and I'm glad that it didn't go through. But it seemed a way to reconcile kind of tech and politics. Uh, there were a good amount of people who you would potentially lose if it didn't go through. And, you know, you're just fracturing the community. Long term, I think it's actually been very good for Bitcoin because they removed a lot of rather nefarious people from Bitcoin. Uh, you know, we had the recent Bcash wars, and that was pretty ridiculous uh, to see how these um, this part this particular group of people decided to go about their business. And but yeah, in general. I don't know. I, the Segwit2x was a good idea on paper, but it's not a very good idea in actuality because not only does it, not only was Segwit2x not needed because Segwit itself already provided uh, nearly double the transaction capacity as pre-Segwit, it also wasn't needed because, and it should have been resisted because it was a consensus change to the way that Bitcoin works. And any consensus change really needs to be thought through incredibly seriously, uh, take a very long time to do, and in general probably shouldn't be done as long as the network is operating fine. Um, and for Bitcoin, the network's been operating quite, quite well for its entire 10 years, except for a few days to maybe a couple months in uh, late twenty in late twenty seventeen, where the transaction fees went up a bit. Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I can think about. I mean, the idea of two megabyte blocks is not that bad, but it was about the mean of achieving two megabyte blocks, which involved a hard fork. And I guess the most difficult issue about it is not per se to have blocks which are twice as big because you, you already have them with SegWit. You have two megabyte blocks sometimes due to the elimination of the block size and its replacement with the idea of block weight. But yeah. the biggest problem was that it created a precedent in which they would hard fork the consensus and once they have done it, it could be done once again, maybe every year in the future. Yeah, make larger and larger blocks. And yeah, of course, you know, block propagation times and all that also, uh, you know, just validation times, those all increase too with two megabyte blocks, whereas SegWit actually made processing transactions far more efficient. Um, but yeah, and I think in general, it really, if you have an easy hard fork, it just shows that your network is centralized. That's quite frankly the, the crux of the issue. Bitcoin is very decentralized, and so you are not going to ever get an easy or simple hard fork. 
the only hard fork you were really going to get was uh, network participants splitting off. And I mean, under most cases, there probably are cases where you could eventually get a hard fork. But in general, that issue, that coordination issue is actually, I would argue, a very good thing because it means that, yeah, nobody was able to change the Bitcoin network. They even wrote code to change it and it wasn't able to be deployed and take over Bitcoin. So I think that's really, really great. And it was a really great precedent to be set uh, when it was, because like you said, otherwise, uh, if you achieve it once, then you can achieve it much more easily the next time and the time after that. I guess it was also the first time when we saw that actually nodes are much more important than miners. And there was this whole narrative which came from miners and their financial interests, which said that there is no reason actually to run your own node. Whereas the developers and the coders and those who got into Bitcoin early on and were for the idea of decentralization as opposed to making a quick buck, they would actually promote every day the idea that you should run your own node and validate your own transactions. And in the whole process, it's not just about the transactions which you validate, but it's also about having a vote in the network and being able as a participant to say that you want to maintain the current consensus as opposed to any kind of social attack which can be deployed on the network. And in this perspective, I guess it was fascinating and it was endearing to see how the community decided to stick together and not do the Segwit2x fork. Yeah, exactly. Anyway, they already had Bitcoin Cash to switch to, so they could just join that side and say, okay, this pretty much achieves the same goal. It's a hard fork. It has eight times the block size, which I guess with Segwit2x, you could also achieve eight megabyte blocks, if I'm not mistaken, or at least four. But anyway. The equivalent of about a four megabyte pre-Segwit block. It's not like in Bitcoin Cash we've ever seen such a demand for block space that we saw blocks fill. And I know that they have the six months upgrade system in which they hard fork in order to increase the block size. But it's pretty ridiculous. And as far as I can understand it, it's just a way of further centralizing the network and putting the power in the hands of those who can actually run nodes. Yeah, exactly. In the end, I guess it's not a popular opinion, but Ethereum seems to have a similar case. And on one hand, you have people who argue that there are many more independent nodes being run on the Ethereum network than on the Bitcoin one. But on the other hand, I saw people like Jameson Lop who tried to run their node on the Ethereum network, like a full node. And they had a top-notch configuration, which you can build from parts that you can find in regular hardware shops. And he was unable to synchronize. It went up to 90% or something. But it was impossible for him to carry on. And he came to the conclusion that the only way to achieve this 
apparently difficult task is to have an industrial machine which has the specific role of running a node and validating every transaction on blockchain. And I guess it's different with Ethereum Classic, right? Uh, sort of. So Lob actually did succeed in syncing the Ethereum chain after about four or so days, maybe five, um, on a very beefy computer, like you said. Uh, in general, that was going to sync. Uh, I think some of the client software on Ethereum and ETC2, admittedly, isn't quite great at syncing yet. Uh, particularly Go Ethereum isn't that good. Uh, Parity is way, way better. And I think when, I'm not sure, but I think when Lop actually managed to sync Ethereum, he used Parity, which has is much, much more efficient and just simply better at actually following through and syncing. Uh, but all that client software is definitely improving over time. So, yeah, hopefully those things where the syncing just halts become improved. But it wasn't that it, – it is taking way too long, though, I would say, to sync Ethereum-based chains. And a lot of that has to do with how high gas usage has uh, been made. And that's definitely an issue – for any Ethereum-based chain, including ETC, that we need to really think about in the future. I think in terms of scalability, I've seen today one of those crypto Twitter memes, which presented the whole idea of increasing the block size as stacking together 56K modems and saying that this is the top technology that we have and we should have as many as we want if we want to achieve a faster speed. Whereas the other way of scaling is to create a better technology and maybe improve on optic fiber and the whole cable system so that you improve on the device itself instead of buying many devices and stacking them. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I guess this is a good metaphor. <laughs> it is. It's kind of funny how that is. And in, in a sense, I'm happy that we got to this point in Bitcoin development where they have a precedent for soft forking. They mm -hmm. saw that it works with SegWit. And now they have ideas such as Schnorr and maybe confidential transactions in order to improve the fungibility and reduce the transaction size in the case of Snore, It's all about making the blocks that we have more efficient and making every transaction take up a lesser or a smaller amount of space, mm -hmm. which is really great if you ask me. And then you have people like Look Dash who talk about decreasing the block size to 600 kilobytes so that new nodes can synchronize faster. Yeah, I think he actually wants like 300, 350 kilobytes. And he's kind of right. Uh, over time, that's not going to work. It's just going to it's gonna make everything far, far more difficult to sync. Uh, the Bitcoin nodes sync pretty fast already. You can, on a beefy hardware setup, you could sync it in like five or six hours, I think which is pretty incredible that it's been running for 10 years and has very high usage and is able to sync like that. 
Um, I think it's something every blockchain should strive to get as close to as possible in, with uh, regards to sync times. Yeah, but if you use a Raspberry Pi, I think it takes about a day or more than that. Oh, yeah, probably. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a Raspberry Pi. <laughs> I don't think, at least the regular user, I don't think anyone will buy a high-end machine just to run a node. It defeats the purpose, I guess. You just want something small, something efficient, which doesn't take up much space, doesn't make much noise, and doesn't consume too much electricity. And you just keep it in a corner of your room and forget about it. Yeah, absolutely. That's why I guess it's much more convenient for somebody like me to buy one of those CASA nodes than to actually run a full node on my desktop computer because I know I use it for different applications throughout the day and I wouldn't want part of the RAM memory and the processing power to be used at the same time. I want full capacity on my desktop. So I'd rather use a different device for this purpose. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah, I don't normally run a node on my work or personal computers either. Normally run them on servers or uh, not a Raspberry Pi or a CASA node yet, though. Those CASA nodes are expensive, <laughs> if I'm being honest. So I'm waiting until a cheaper version comes out. Yeah, they are. And I spoke to Alena Vranova from CASA, I think, two weeks ago. And she told me that there's no chance that we'll see a cheaper version because it's just like in the case of an iPhone. You don't really pay for the hardware. You pay much more for the software and all the development and the support that's going to be put into the product after you purchase it. Oh, okay. She actually said that they plan to support the device for multiple years and they're going to have employees to answer phone calls and offer you complete support. Mm -hmm. Which oh, I guess okay. to people like us who are enthusiasts, it's not quite something that we need. But once they get to a larger, I don't know, once they get maybe shopping malls which purchase nodes so that they, they can take lightning payments, then they're going to need support desks. Yeah, absolutely. I guess it's just, it's not a, it's not a product really designed for, it's designed for certain people or use cases. And I guess I just don't overlap with them. So when you think of Bitcoin, do you automatically associate it with gold or do you see something more in it? Um, is, is Bitcoin being digital gold not enough? I think that's an amazing, incredible uh, use case. Uh, but yeah, Bitcoin is first and foremost a very uh, digital replacement for gold or for just money or value storage in general. Uh, it's also the world's most decentralized timestamp server. You know, it's the it's a really interesting thing. Um, 
It's definitely not one thing, but I mean, Bitcoin's main use case, I think, is more than enough. I don't think Bitcoin itself needs other things tacked onto it. I think if you want to do that, then you go and do that with altcoins or some other thing. I actually don't even agree with, uh, in general, with forking cryptocurrencies um, in a contentious way. So contentious hard forks, I disagree with in general because you should just start a new network. You should start with your own Genesis block. You keep all the same rules. You keep all the same issuance, but you know, taking a different blockchain and just kind of copying the account balances and launching it, uh, I just really, really disagree with in general. Do you believe that maybe the, great, the greater adoption of the Lightning Network will lead to this scenario where lots of altcoins just become redundant and people stop buying them and they just die? Uh, yeah, I think a lot of altcoins will fade out. I don't think all of them will. Um, I'm obviously biased, uh, but even ignoring my biases, I don't, and not saying for any specific altcoin, but in general, I would say that uh, people are really bad at settling on just one thing. Um, we don't seem to have just one of any type of thing. So the idea that we would settle on just one global money uh, is also very unlikely. That's even for, you know, for example, privacy coins, uh, the level of privacy that some privacy coins can give you, Bitcoin's probably never going to be able to achieve without either using layer two networks or without a hard fork. And the fact that there's other uh, cryptocurrencies that give you that and they can do it on layer one with the maximum amount of decentralization uh, without having to resort to layer two, I think is really interesting and important and probably a, a particular use case that people are going to want. Uh, same thing with having digitized uh, types of smart contracts between people. You know, you can do that on layer two, but then you still rely on the layer two routes. You haven't removed all the trust the same way you would on a layer one blockchain. And I think that's another area where there's going to be use cases and things sticking around because of that, because they do other things. Um, I think it's really cool how much potential decentralization and permissionlessness that proof of work in general has given us. Uh, I think Bitcoin is such an excellent and probably the best example of that, but I still think there's a lot of room for others. I've heard what I think is a very interesting point of view in regards to altcoins, which comes from Udi Wertheimer, who is a developer. And he told me that even though the Lightning Network will someday reach this level of adoption, which is unprecedented and impossible to compete with, altcoins will always find a way to re reinvent themselves and say that they provide something unique, different, or just the opportunity to go 1,000x in a couple of years. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I'd agree with that. I don't think altcoins 
sole reasons for existence are to promise something better. We're generally trying to promise the same thing that uh, we're trying to pro give give the same type of decentralization to other things. And you're not going to ever get that on Lightning Network. Um, that's just not the way that it's going to work. Uh, even Lightning Network itself, even though you'll be able to make confidential transactions and uh, potentially even choose your own routes to, through the network, you're still not going to get that type of decentralization where uh, there's no set of parties or there's no, I guess, I don't know. It's just layer two is never going to be as decentralized as layer one. And that's the way it is. But do you ever reckon that there will come a moment when maybe that Ethereum Classic will join the Lightning Network and we will be able to do atomic swaps and maybe make smart contracts on the Lightning Network, which gets settled on the main chain? Uh, yeah, maybe. Um, atomic swaps and that type of thing are kind of hard to do cross-chain. They're already hard to do. It's already kind of hard to do um, on a single chain. But yeah, I could, I could see it. I know that up to this point, maybe the vision for Ethereum Classic is to scale to side chains and have as many applications that are deployed on specific side chains which fulfill the requirements. And do you think that it will be as successful as we see that it is with Bitcoin right now with, what's it called, Blockstreams? What's the name of Blockstream sidechain? I forgot. Liquid? Liquid, yeah. Um, I don't know. Remains to be seen. Uh, we're still, sidechains are still definitely being built, but are nowhere near uh, production ready yet. And yeah, we'll hopefully see more of them. Obviously, there's a lot of benefits to layer two. Uh, I just don't think layer two provides every single benefit under the sun. If it, if it did, then you wouldn't need Bitcoin, and you clearly need Bitcoin. <laughs> Right, because I remember there was this discussion that you can actually build a Turing-complete sidechain on top of Bitcoin, even though I'm not sure how it works with the final settlement and if, if it can have all the functions of Ethereum. Maybe that someday that will be possible, but I'm not sure if it will have all the features. Yeah, I don't think it'll work the same way. Um the final terms of the settlements would have to be agreed upon on layer two before getting to layer one. Whereas with smart contract platforms, the uh, final settlement can actually happen on layer one itself. You know, the final logic around it can happen on layer one. I think I've heard this argument from Donald McIntyre, who also works or used to work for Ethereum Classic, he once said that in every venture and in every business or industry, you have at least two or three or four different 
alternatives to the main one, just in case one fails or has its limitations or it gets overcrowded. And that's one of the reasons why he thinks that proof of work will have three or four blockchains to function simultaneously. Yeah. Yeah, I think proof of work in general is probably going to have... No, I think cryptocurrencies are going to settle on three or four cryptocurrencies. I think uh, whether or not their proof of work is going to depend on how how we can all properly communicate the importance of proof of work as a means towards decentralization. Right. Yeah. But at this point, it's very interesting to see the dynamics of the market and how sometimes you have this these ideas for Bitcoin side chains, which other people turn into altcoins, which have the rise and then you see them fall all of a sudden. But the idea is still there. And maybe someday we will see something like Mimblewimble or advanced confidential transactions and other innovations which have been made in the space being deployed on Bitcoin side chains. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I hope to see these things expand everywhere. Um, I think that just going back though to the cryptocurrencies thing, I think the important thing to keep in mind is that when false equivalencies are made between all non-Bitcoin cryptos, it kind of weakens the argument for POW. Uh, and it makes this kind of space for the ripples of the world to, you know, move in. But, yeah, I mean, Mimblewimble's an interesting tech. I don't know if it's beneficial on a sidechain because it seems to rely just on a lot of coin mixing, coin join type operations. Um, but, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll see. I guess Bitcoin, I mean, in terms of Bitcoin maximalism, it's useful to keep Bitcoin as the main actor, as the king of this kingdom of cryptos. But it's also useful to at least take some lessons from the history uh, and the experiences of every other altcoin out there. As even though maybe that they will never reach the same scale of adoption, and they will never achieve mainstream success they still have history and you see how the community reacts and you see how different features get added and how the consensus works i guess from a development point of view all of the altcoins which have been deployed and are bitcoin hard forks can be lessons for the bitcoin developers in terms of how to operate and what kind of mistakes they should avoid yeah, definitely. Uh, there's definitely a lot of lessons to learn. And, you know, as far as mainstream adoption goes, I think uh, I think Bitcoin needs to kind of be careful because uh, there's a lot of coins that don't share that type of ethos or that type of approach to running their network that have now, because we know about cryptocurrencies, 
they've advanced far faster. They've grown at a much higher clip than uh, Bitcoin currently is. And I think that that's something that's kind of overlooked. You know, Bitcoin had a substantial head start. And my fear is that in 10, 15 years, we see Bitcoin actually gets replaced by another cryptocurrency that is a cryptocurrency in name only and uh, kind of just, you know, this was all for nothing and a new generation will rediscover all the advantages of decentralization and, and proof of work in particular and how it helps achieve that. Um, but yeah, that's kind of a scenario that I don't want to see happen. Um, so I think it's important for Bitcoin in general to be aware that a lot of people are not going to care and that education of people is very vitally important to uh, getting proof of work and Bitcoin in particular to stay where it is, uh, which is, in my opinion, absolutely necessary to the real future of this space. Otherwise, it just becomes bank coins. Sometimes I see Bitcoin as a once in a civilization chance to get away from money which is owned by the government because otherwise it's very hard for me to imagine how a new actor can step into the scene and benefit from the same kind of enthusiasm and actually grow in a decentralized way that is ethical as opposed to having pre-mines and rewards for the founders and a centralization which is granted by the existence of the founders themselves. Yeah, exactly. And yeah, Bitcoin is that one in a million shot to actually have that. Uh, otherwise, it, it may just get replaced by things that aren't anything like it. But yeah, I really, 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 really hope it doesn't. But the more like I look at it, the more you even just see these stupid ad campaigns about how crypto needs rules, the more uh, the more I wonder if it's going to end up going that way. Um, and hopefully Bitcoin can grow to a critical mass to where it's used so much that this becomes impossible, but I don't think we're quite at that point yet. About that ad from the Gemini Exchange, I guess it made me lose some respect for the Winklevoss brothers. They they got in at, at a point when maybe Bitcoin was not as popular and they saw the potential in it. And maybe that their trust in the cryptocurrency has given Bitcoin some more legitimacy in the eyes of some investors. But at the same time, they... I, I've never actually seen them defend the cypherpunk ethos or ethos, how do you pronounce it, ethos of Bitcoin. I've never seen them stand for the ideals of Satoshi or Hal Finney. To them, it's just business. And I guess that's something that should be worrisome and should be a big red flag for us at least for those who use Gemini, which in itself is a KYC exchange. Yeah, it's tough. Oh. And I, I hope I don't get sued for making these claims, but I, I don't think there's anything untrue in the statement that I've made. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, don't, I think it's kind of, it's silly to portray cryptocurrency like this and to say that, you know, we need these certain groups to bring rules in order to this situation. Like, we've gotten along absolutely fine before this. Uh, so it just, I don't know. Um, but that's the type of thing that I see eventually happening is where it, we need to get to a critical mass first um, in order to have true decentralization and true usage of Bitcoin uh, globally. But anyway, Vlad, I hate to cut this short, but I have to head out. So, uh, yeah. It's fine. I'm really happy that you were able to do this. And maybe that some other time, maybe in another season of the Bitcoin Taker, we can talk some more about the same topic. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, happy to. Anthony, it was good to have you. And thank you for listening. All right. Thanks for having me. I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Bye.